Listeners, if you enjoyed the podcast Unsolved Murders, you can find our entire catalog of episodes, plus new ones each week, free and only on Spotify. That's hundreds of episodes you won't hear anywhere else, all in one place. All you have to do is download the Spotify app for free and follow Unsolved Murders to ensure you don't miss out on any of history's most shocking real-life cold cases. Thanks for listening to Unsolved Murders, and we'll see you on Spotify. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that listeners may find offensive or distressing. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. How can I connect your call? I need to speak to Ross Moore. It's urgent. Putting you through. Hello? Jesse, it's Mary. Is Ross around? He's outside. What's going on? You sound worried. Well, something's not right at Joe's house. What do you mean? Well, I didn't mean to trespass on your brother-in-law's privacy, but I couldn't help but notice how quiet the house was when I was hanging my laundry. So after I finished hanging the clothes, I tried calling on them. No one answered. All the shades in the house were drawn and the doors are locked. That's certainly peculiar. Now, I didn't want to overstep my bounds, but I let the chickens out into the yard and fed them. The rest of the animals are still tied up in the barn, though. And it doesn't look like they've been fed, either. I'll tell Ross to meet you at Joe's house right away. Mary! Ross, thank goodness you're here. Any luck reaching your brother at the shop? No. They say he hasn't come in yet. I just don't understand what's going on here. Maybe we should try knocking again. Hello? Hello? Anyone home? Sarah? Joe? It's Ross. Is everything all right? Sarah, children, are you in there? Joe, please, it's your brother. Just answer us. Now what? I don't like barging in on them, but I guess there's no choice. I'll use my key. Hello? Joe? Sarah? It's dark as night in here. (gasps) Oh my god. What is it? We need the marshal. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. You're listening to our first episode on the Villisca Axe Murders. If you want to hear our investigation into other cold cases, you can listen, subscribe, and write reviews on your favorite podcast directory. You can also listen through our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. And I'm your other host, Carter Roy. 
The Monday morning of June 10th, 1912 was cloudy and humid. The small, bustling town of Villisca, Iowa was stirring to life. Yet the Moore house was completely silent. The household was normally lively. Josiah Moore, more commonly known as Joe, should have been already headed off to work. Sarah Moore would normally have been outside and tending to her chores. The four children, Herman Montgomery, age 11, Mary Catherine, age 10, Arthur Boyd, age 7, and Paul Vernon, age 5, should have been playing together in the yard. You're it! No fear! Catherine's friends, 8-year-old Ina Mae Stillinger and her sister, 12-year-old Lena Gertrude Stillinger, should have been headed home after their sleepover at the Moore house. Bye, Catherine! Bye! But instead, everything was silent. Disturbed by the strange stillness of the Moore house, Mary Peckham, the Moore's next-door neighbor, called Joe Moore's brother Ross to help her investigate. Unable to rouse the family, Ross Moore opened the front door with his copy of the house key. With all the windows shuttered and even the glass in front of the doors covered with clothing, it was pitch black inside the house. With Mary trailing behind him, Ross walked across the parlor. He noticed the downstairs bedroom door was ajar and he pushed it open. He saw two bodies lying in bed and blood everywhere. Ross and Mary quickly left the house and called Hank Horton, the town marshal. The town had very little crime and almost no murders. Horton was not a trained detective, but he was all that was available in Villisca. What's the trouble, Ross? Something terrible has happened. You better have a look. Oh, Jesus. In the downstairs bedroom, Horton found two people covered in bedclothes. He would later learn that the two downstairs victims were Catherine Moore's playmates, eight-year-old Ina May and her older sister, Lena Gertrude Stillinger, age 12. They had been bludgeoned to death with an axe. Their heads had been crushed so thoroughly that they were unrecognizable. The killer had draped children's coats over their smashed faces. Horton found the long-handled axe in question leaning against a wall covered in blood. On the floor, there was a four-pound slab of unsliced bacon wrapped in a dishcloth. There was another slab like it in the icebox. Why would there be bacon on the floor? I should warn you and our listeners that one probable answer to that question is very disturbing. Listeners should proceed with caution. Ugh. What's the theory? Young Lena's bedclothes had been pulled up to reveal her genitalia. Investigators theorized that the killer may have used Lena's corpse and the greasy bacon in order to masturbate. That's horrible! The bacon wasn't the only strange thing in the room. At the foot of the bed, there was an unlit kerosene lamp with its chimney removed. Okay, I'm not quite old enough to remember kerosene lamps. What exactly was a lamp chimney? In oil lamps, the chimney was the clear glass tube that went over the wick and protected it from air currents, while protecting the lamp's owners from the risk of a house fire. Over time, quality lamp chimneys became very elaborate and decorative. So why was the lamp chimney missing? And why was there even a lamp at the foot of the girl's bed? Investigators had no idea. Horton found the missing chimney under the dresser, but he also found something even stranger in the room. The mirror had been covered with a dark skirt. Why? 
Well, there were a lot of superstitions at the time about mirrors. Some girls would use mirrors to try and glimpse their future husbands, but if they saw a skull in the mirror, it meant they were doomed to die. Others thought that ghosts could appear in mirrors, which may be how the Bloody Mary myth originated. Do you think the killer was afraid the ghosts of his victims would haunt him? It wasn't an unreasonable fear. Even today, some people still believe the Moore House is haunted by its murder victims. And it wasn't just Lena and Ina May who had been killed. After Horton finished investigating the downstairs bedroom where the girls were murdered, he made his way up the creaky staircase. At the top of the stairs, Horton found a second unlit kerosene lamp. Just like the lamp in the downstairs bedroom, its chimney was missing. Moving the lamp out of the way, Horton entered the master bedroom. He found Joe and Sarah Moore. Covered with a sheet, their heads had also been bashed in with an axe. Blood was everywhere. Horton saw marks gouged into the ceiling. Investigators later guessed that the axe had been swung with such force that the killer had left marks in the ceiling as he repeatedly struck Joe and Sarah in the head. In the final bedroom, Horton found the Moore's four children, Herman, Catherine, Arthur, and Paul. They had all been struck fatally in the head with the axe found in the downstairs bedroom. Horton went back down the stairs and found Ross Moore, who was waiting for him on the porch. What is it? What did you find? My God, Ross. There's somebody murdered in every bed. The Villisca Axe Murders, as they came to be known, were one of many significant national tragedies that happened in 1912, but it's not the one that people most remember. On April 15th, two months before the Villisca Murders, the RMS Titanic sank in the Atlantic Ocean. More than 1,500 of the 2,224 aboard died, including many prominent Americans. This tragedy caused worldwide outrage and led to significant improvements in maritime safety with the creation of SOLAS, the International Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea. The loss of the Titanic hit close to home for Villisca residents. Ernest Danbaum, a resident of the nearby town of Stanton, his wife Anna, and their infant son Gilbert all died when the ship sank. Yet not even the sinking of the Titanic could prepare Villiscans for the unsolved murders that would threaten to tear apart the very fabric of their town. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. The townspeople had enjoyed a harmonious existence for 54 years since Villisca was founded by D.N. Smith of the CB&Q Railroad. Smith claimed that the town's name, Villisca, meant pretty view in the language of the Native Americans who used to live in Iowa. But others believe the name of the town comes from the Sac and Fox word, Villisca, which means evil spirit. 
That second definition seems eerily appropriate. Well, maybe. But remember that before the murders, there was almost no crime in Villisca. By 1912, Villisca was a thriving, prosperous town of around 2,500, more than double its current population today. The town was commercially and artistically vibrant, filled with restaurants, stores, and even an opera house. It was a major railroad hub, with over two dozen passenger and freight trains stopping daily. In fact, the frequency of train departures would be a major focal point in the hunt for the Velisca axe murderer. Before the killings, the town was quiet and peaceful. American elm trees lined every street, stretching their arms to the sky and providing a shady canopy for its residents. Villisca was ahead of its time with electricity and phones in many homes. Well, the town's electric streetlights would also play an important role on June 9th, the night the Moore family and the Stillinger girls were murdered. Before his untimely death, Joe Moore was a beloved member of the community. He was born in Hanover, Illinois in 1868, but moved to a farm near Villisca with his parents when he was a young boy. He grew up on the farm with 13 brothers and sisters. Whew, that's a lot of kids. Well, not in that era. Parents needed the extra help, especially around the farm. And in the 1800s, children were far more likely to die before reaching adulthood. Joe Moore reached adulthood just fine and grew into a strapping young man. He was tall and burly at around six feet and 200 pounds when he met his future wife, Sarah Montgomery. Well, Sarah was born in Henderson, Illinois in 1873, the younger of two daughters. The family of four moved to Villisca in 1893. Sarah's father, John, was a wealthy, well-respected farmer. His money would later help finance the search for Sarah's killer. Sarah Montgomery and Joe Moore married in 1899. Do you affirm your desire and intention to enter the covenant of marriage? I do. I do. The Moore's eldest son, Herman, was born in 1901. Over the next six years, they welcomed three more children into their family, Mary Catherine in 1902, Arthur Boyd in 1905, and Paul Vernon in 1907. Joe Moore needed a well-paying job to care for his growing family. Luckily, he was hired by the Farland brothers as a young man to work as a salesman in their implement store, which sold agricultural equipment to the town's farmers. Friendly and outgoing, Joe was a well-liked and effective salesman, and Farland promoted him. I gotta say, Joe, you're one hell of a salesman. I can't believe you got that stubborn old codger to buy that plow. Thank you, Mr. Farland. How do you feel about a promotion to manager? I'd be very grateful. Then congratulations, young man. The promotion is yours. The Farland Brothers store originally belonged to a man named Frank F. Jones, often remembered by his nickname F.F. Jones. And in 1902, F.F. Jones bought the store back from the Farland Brothers. F.F. Jones was one of the most influential men in the community. Born in New York in 1855, he moved to Iowa in 1875. He started out as a school teacher, then became a wealthy business owner, a banker, and a prominent member of Villisca's Methodist Church. An ambitious man, Jones ran for a seat in the Iowa House of Representatives in 1903. He won the seat easily and served for three terms. And as his third term ended, Jones was eager to increase his political influence. Your term's almost up, F.F. You planning to run again? I am, but not for the House. Setting your sights higher? 
I'm contemplating a bid for the state senate. Can I count on your support? Your positions are at times a bit too liberal for my taste, but you've got my vote. While many admired Jones, others found him arrogant. He was known for being a strict disciplinarian, both as a schoolteacher and as an employer. Sarah, are you still up? Welcome home, dear. Children asleep? Yes, finally. Catherine wanted to wait up to see you, but I got her to bed by about ten. Oh, do you want something to eat? I'll fix you a plate. I'm too tired to eat. Oh, it's not right. We've been over this. It's just not fair. How many more Saturdays is FF going to make y'all work from the break of dawn until one in the morning? FF is a businessman, Sarah. He didn't make his money by being a soft touch. You don't have to tell me twice. You work so hard every day, and look how little he pays you. You're right. It is about time I ask for a raise. For years, Joe Moore was F.F. Jones' best salesman, until they had a disagreement over Joe's salary. I think it's fair to say that my sales have been particularly high this year. What are you angling for? To be honest, F.F., I think I've earned a raise. You don't think I compensate you fairly? It's not like that. I just think that given what I'm earning for you... I should be bringing a little more of that home. I'm sorry, Joe. You're not getting a raise. Come on, FF. You know I'm your best salesman. Which is why you're the manager. We both know how much I bring in. It wouldn't hurt your bottom line to increase my salary. It's a matter of principle. I give you a raise, and soon all the boys are going to be asking me for a raise. Just tell them if they start selling like me, they'll get a raise like me. Well, let's talk about it in a year. Nine years isn't long enough of a wait. Joe, you need to drop this. It's not going to happen. Fine. Then I quit. Joe. Joe, come on, you just can't quit on me. Joe! I doubt Jones was happy that his best salesman quit. Joe didn't just quit. He set up a rival shop on the other side of the town square from Jones, taking the lucrative John Deere account with him. But was Joe's gamble to start his own store a good one? By all accounts, his gamble paid off. Joe's store was very successful and became a major source of competition for Jones's store. Hmm. Sounds like Joe had good reasons for quitting, but if I were Jones, I'd feel kind of betrayed. Things were so bad between Joe and Jones that the whole town gossiped about it. Rumor was that they wouldn't even speak to each other, and if they met on the street, Jones would cross to the other side of the street to avoid Joe. That's quite a grudge. You think it might have been reason enough for Jones to murder Joe? You don't? Well, it's not like Jones was run out of business by Joe opening his own shop, was he? Not at all. I can see Jones being angry at Joe for quitting and opening a rival store. But that just doesn't seem like a strong or passionate enough reason for Jones to murder not just Joe, but his wife and children as well. Well, as it turns out, Jones may have had a far more personal reason to hold a grudge against Joe. But before we look at Jones' motives, we need to investigate what happened the day of the murders. At church services on Sunday, June 9th, the Moore children were excitedly looking forward to the performance they would be taking part in later that evening. It was the annual Children's Day at Villisca's Presbyterian Church. It took place at the conclusion of the year's Sunday school classes and involved the children putting on a play for their parents. Sarah Moore, a religious woman, was very involved in the church. She helped arrange the Children's Day and made sure her kids were at the Sunday afternoon rehearsal. But Catherine Moore's friends Ina May and Lena Stillinger were worried. 
They were supposed to spend the night at their grandmother's house after the play, but they were scared of walking home in the dark. I have an idea. Why don't you stay at my house tonight? Really? Your parents won't mind? Of course not. Daddy, can Lena and Ina May stay over tonight? I don't see why not. As long as we get their parents' permission. Thank you, Mr. Moore. See? I told you he'd say yes. <laughs> Joe Moore called the Stillinger home to ask permission for the girls to spend the night. Their older sister answered the phone. Hello? Hi, Mrs. Stillinger. This is Joe Moore. Lena and Ina May would like to spend the night with us after Children's Day. Oh, hi, Mr. Moore. This is Blanche you're speaking to. I'm sorry, sweetheart. Is your mother available? Uh, no, but, but that's fine. They can spend the night. Um, I'll let mother and father know. Thank you, Blanche. The missus will make sure the girls are back home by early morning. The decision to let her sisters stay at the Moore's house would weigh heavily on poor Blanche Stillinger in the decades to follow. That night, the Moore children and the Stillinger girls all took part in the performance. Joe Moore sat at the back of the church, proudly watching his children perform in the play. Sitting near Joe and eagerly watching the children was a visiting Presbyterian minister by the name of Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly. A scrawny and unusually short man, the Little Reverend, as he came to be known, was visiting town as a guest of the church's Presbyterian minister, Reverend Ewing. Kelly didn't give a sermon that night or speak to anyone at the church. Almost no one would even remember he had been there. So why do we need to pay attention to him? No one may have noticed the little reverend on the night of the murders, but he would later make himself a key figure in the investigation of the Velisca murders. But more on him later. After the children's performance, the townsfolk gathered on the church's porch to talk. Look at that. Pitch blackout. Why do you suppose the street lamps haven't come on? Could be there's something wrong at the power plant. Well, speculating isn't going to do us any good, and we should probably all head on home before it gets any later. All right. Round up the children. Son, time to get going. Catherine. Boys. Bye. See you tomorrow. The Moore's fellow churchgoers were the last ones to see them alive. Well, the townsfolk had no idea that the streetlights were dark due to a dispute between the Velisca City Council and the local power company. The darkness would be welcomed by at least one person in Velisca that night, the killer. After the Moore family arrived home, the kids had cookies and milk before tucking in. Meanwhile, in the town square, Hank Horton and the night watchman, Mike Overman, noticed a stranger walking down the street. Hello there. Hello? Who do you reckon that is, Mike? Uh, it's too dark to say with the street lights out. Maybe you should shine your light on them? Uh, is that really necessary? I suppose not. Was that stranger the murderer? It's possible. Or the killer may have been hiding in the Moore's barn. An impression in the hay led investigators to believe that the killer may have lain in wait for hours while the Moors were at the Children's Day performance at their church. Well, it probably helped that there was a knot hole in the barn that gave the killer a view of the back of the Moors' house. Exactly. The murderer was able to watch the Moors and knew when they went to bed. At around midnight, the killer struck. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now, let's continue our story. After Horton found the bodies of the Moore family and the Stillinger girls the next morning, 
news spread quickly. Ross's wife, Jessie Moore, and the Moore's neighbor, Mary Peckham, began calling anyone in town they thought needed to know what had happened. The girls who worked as phone operators also passed along information to people in town. Meanwhile, the Stillinger family was wondering why Ina May and Lena hadn't come home that morning as promised when their sister Blanche gave them permission to spend the night at the Moore's house. The girl's mother, Sarah Stillinger, tried to call the Moores early in the morning but was surprised when no one answered. She called again later that morning, hoping to reach someone at the house. How can I connect your call? Joe Moore, please. I'm so sorry. I can't connect your call. Why not? Is the phone line down? You haven't heard? The Moores were murdered last night. But... But Ina May and Lena just spent the night at the Moore house. No, they can't have. Do you do you know if they're all right? Mrs. Stillinger, I'm so sorry. Everyone in the house is dead. Oh, oh my god. Oh, oh no. <laughs> Less than an hour after Horton found the bodies that Monday morning, he brought Dr. Cooper to the crime scene. The coroner, Dr. Lindquist, and several other doctors joined them, and they examined the bodies. The identities of Lena and Ina Mae Stillinger were confirmed by the Bibles they kept on the bedside table in which they had inscribed their names. It was the coroner, Dr. Lindquist, who noticed and recorded most of the details of the crime scene. In addition to observing the mirrors and the glass covered with cloth, the strangely placed bacon, and the oddly positioned lamps, he also observed a piece of keychain in the downstairs bedroom, a bowl of bloody water on the kitchen table where the killer had washed up, and a bloody shoe next to Joe Moore's side of the bed. Look at this. Mrs. Moore's shoe filled with blood before the killer knocked it over and spilled it on the floor. What do you think that means? The killer hit Mr. Moore many more times than he hit Mrs. Moore. Maybe Mr. Moore didn't die the first time the killer struck him. Blood trickled into that shoe from his wound, but Mr. Moore was still alive. Perhaps the killer heard Mr. Moore groaning while he was in the other room murdering the little ones. God rest their souls. You think he came back and finished the job on Mr. Moore? That's right. And when he came back in, he knocked the shoe aside. After examining the bodies, the doctors determined that Sarah Moore and the girls hadn't been raped. Though there remained disagreement on whether Lena's body had been positioned in a sexual manner or whether she had merely attempted to defend herself and slid down across the bed. By the time the doctors and Hank Horton came back outside, a small crowd was forming. Word had spread through Villisca about the murders and everyone in town wanted to view the bodies for themselves. Don't go in there, boys. You will regret it to the day you die. The townsfolk ignored the marshals and barged into the house. One man, Mr. Stillians, even took pictures of the corpses until he was spotted by Ross Moore. What the hell do you think you're doing? Look, a reporter called me and... The camera was destroyed, along with any evidence Stillian's camera might have preserved. Because there were no detectives at that time in Villisca, it would take them hours to arrive from out of town. A mob of Aliskans descended upon the Moore House, destroying and altering evidence before the detectives could arrive. Someone even took a chunk of Joe Moore's skull as a gruesome souvenir. Get them out of here. They're destroying the evidence. I don't have the manpower. 
Kick them off the front porch and they come in through the back door. By 11 a.m., hundreds of people had gathered outside the Moore house. The sheriff worried that any suspects found that day would end up getting lynched by the mob, so he called in the National Guard. Townspeople suspected the killer was hiding somewhere in Villisca. They took up arms and searched Villisca's farms in large groups, checking barns for the killer. But they found no one. F.F. Jones came up with an idea on how to find the killer. But didn't Jones have a grudge against Joe? Why would he be so eager to help? Well, as an elected official and an aspiring state senator, F.F. Jones wanted to show that he could take charge and lead in a crisis. Or maybe, if he was the killer... He wanted to keep people from suspecting him. Whatever his reasons, F.F. was one of the first to visit the Moore house and offer his condolences to Ross Moore. He suggested they bring in Elmer Knopfsinger's famous bloodhounds from Beatrice, Nebraska, and offer to foot the $174 bill. That was quite generous of him. Adjusted for inflation, paying $174 in 1912 is equivalent to spending over $4,000 today. Knopfsinger sent his bloodhounds to Villisca by train. They arrived at the Moore home and they got to work. After smelling the axe handle and a piece of bloody cloth, they were off. The bloodhounds raced off the Moore's front porch. An enthusiastic crowd of over a thousand people followed behind them. The hounds stopped for a moment at Jones's house, then led the mob of people out of town to the Nodaway River. At the river's edge, the trail went cold. Investigators found footprints, clothes, and a bloody handkerchief. These could have been left by the killer, but they also could have been left by fishermen. They ran the dogs again, but the hounds kept leading investigators to the river. With no suspect in jail, the residents of Villisca were scared and paranoid. The homeless living in encampments just outside Villisca were terrified that the townspeople would blame one of them for the murders. As soon as they heard about the killing, a group of black homeless men got on a train and fled the town, fearful that they would be lynched as scapegoats. But while the homeless fled Villisca on one train, another train brought a new expert into town. On Tuesday, June 11th, Special Agent and Criminologist M.W. McClowry arrived in Villisca. He came from a long line of law enforcement officials, and he was an expert in a newly developed type of forensics, fingerprinting. There was only one problem. Despite his impressive credentials, when he got off the train to meet Hank Horton and the coroner, Dr. Lindquist, he was drunk as a skunk. Mr. McClary? Dr. Lindquist, I'm, I'm here for the, uh, the thing. The fingerprint analysis of the Moore home? Right, right, right. That's, that's the one. Oh, God. Uh, seems like you've had a few, Mr. McClary. Uh, fine, fine. Let's go. How far to the Moore house? You aren't going anywhere near that crime scene until you're sober. Let's get you to a hotel. <laughs> After McClowery sobered up, he checked the Moore's house for fingerprints. He couldn't find any fingerprints, but he did examine the marks left by the axe in the ceiling and theorized that the murderer was left-handed. On Wednesday, the small town of Villisca buried the Moore family and the Stillinger girls. With no suspect in jail, one thought was on everyone's mind. Who was the killer?
As we mourn the loss of the Moore family and these precious children, I want to admonish you all not to be overcome by your thirst for vengeance. If a suspect is caught, it is for the courts to decide whether he is guilty. Do not take justice into your own hands, and do not let your passions rule you. Reverend Ewing was worried that the townsfolk might lynch a homeless stranger. He had no idea that in the years to come, passions would flare as many in the town came to believe one of their own was the killer. Mr. Wilkerson, this is a surprise. Evening, Mr. Moore. There's something I need to discuss with you. Is this about that train trip? I really don't think I want to be buying any more land right now. It's time I told you the truth. I'm not really a Texas land agent. What are you talking about? I'm from the Burns Detective Agency. The state of Iowa hired me to find your brother's killer. You're pulling my leg. I apologize for the subterfuge. I didn't want the murderer to suspect me. Two years since my brother was murdered in cold blood, and the police don't even have a suspect. What makes you different? I have more than a suspect. I know who the killer is. Wilkerson's investigation would split the town in two. Neighbor would turn against neighbor, friend against friend, Methodists against Presbyterians. Next week, we will uncover whether Detective Wilkerson found the true killer. We will also learn that Reverend Kelly, one of the last to see the Moore family alive, had dark secrets of his own. And one of those secrets may have involved murder. Or perhaps the murder of the Moore family was connected to the other families hacked to death by an unknown axeman in 1912. Was a serial killer responsible for murdering the Moores and the Stillinger girls? Join us next week and find out. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on Facebook or Twitter at Parcast Network. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. And next Tuesday, we'll continue our investigation into the Velisca Axe Murders. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live, till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Ron and Max Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Maggie Admire, and written by Jeanette Manning. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Mick Lambeth, Harris Markson, Sammy Nye, Steve Pinto, and Vanessa Richardson. Thanks for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. Here's a reminder that you can find hundreds of shocking murder mysteries, episodes you won't hear anywhere else, by following Unsolved Murders free and only on Spotify.